Pray with me, please. Father, uh, as we come this morning, God, uh, first of all, we want to um, tell you that we know who you are and that there's none other. You're our creator and you're our Lord and our Savior. And you gave your son for us. So you demonstrated your love through him and you rescued us. Thank you. And so we look forward this morning to uh, your word and the things that we're going to hear. And uh, uh, we can go away today uh, with something that will help us in our life that uh, hopefully, too, we can share with others. So that's our prayer, God. And so be with Phil's uh, words this morning that he has prepared. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. 22 years ago, Max Lucado wrote a book called He Chose the Nails. Looks just like this. It's an absolutely fantastic read. Title is up on the screen for you. He Chose the Nails. There's a section in this book where he writes the most intriguing things under a heading that says very simply, the movement continues. Here it is for you. The movement continues. I want to share with you what he wrote in that section. I edited very little out of it. This is what he wrote. It starts with some intriguing declarations. The belief of French philosopher Voltaire, the Bible and Christianity would pass within a hundred years. Voltaire died in 1778. The movement continues. The pronouncement of Friedrich Nietzsche in 1882, God is dead. The dawn of science, he believed, would be the doom of faith. Science has dawned. The movement continues. The way a communist dictionary defined the Bible, it is a collection of fantastic legends without any scientific support. Communism is diminishing. The movement continues. The discovery made by every person who has tried to bury the faith is the same discovery as the one, who, one made by those who tried to bury its founder. He won't stay in the tomb. Now he moves from these types of declarative statements very quickly into some logical arguments or a logical discussion. It looks just like this. The facts. The movement has never been stronger. The question how do we explain it? Jesus was a backwater peasant. He never wrote a book, never held an office. He never journeyed more than 200 miles from his hometown. Friends left him, one betrayed him. Those he helped forgot him. Prior to his death, they abandoned him. But after his death, they couldn't resist him. What made the difference? The answer, his death and resurrection. For when he died, so did your sin. And when he rose, so did your hope. The reason he did it, the face in your mirror. And look at how he finishes this. The verdict after two millenniums, Herod was right. There is room for only one king. That is powerful stuff. It's almost as if he took that from the pages of the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bible with you, open to Isaiah chapter 1 with me. 
Isaiah chapter 1. This morning, I'm going to break with what we normally do. I typically preach and teach out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Today, I'm looking at the New International Version. I like the way this reads. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what the old prophet says. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Now, I love the way Isaiah starts this. It is a quote from God himself. Take a look at it again up on the screen. Isaiah says, come let us settle, or come now, let us settle the matter. Again, that's a quote directly from God. All Isaiah did was write it down. The Lord himself said, come now, let us settle the matter. And then he gives us this beautiful glimpse of the Messiah, of the coming of Jesus. Come now, let us settle the matter. When we do, when we settle the matter, hope is awakened within us. That's the teaching of Isaiah. The movement continues, Max Lucado would say, 2,000 years after Jesus came, after Jesus died, after Jesus was buried, after he rose from the grave, 2,000 years, the movement continues. Yet we still have to individually settle the matter of what we believe about him. Every one of us, every one of us. No one can settle it for you. You cannot attach your belief to someone else. It is necessary, listen, it is necessary for you to settle the matter for yourself. As we go into this Christmas season, that is my goal, to help you settle the matter. If you are on the fence about what you believe about Jesus, you're not sure whether you can trust him You are not sure whether he is who he says he is. You're not sure whether you can trust the Bible in regard to what it says about Jesus. It is my goal to help you settle the matter. And as we do, hope will awaken. It will rise within you. And it's powerful when that happens. It is so powerful. I hope you'll be with us. For the next, well, today would be five weeks, but the next four weeks as we build towards Christmas Sunday and settle the matter. As we get started, though, it seems very fitting for me, or to me, that we begin in the book of Joshua, a unique place. So if you, again, have your Bible with you, open to that Old Testament book. Joshua will be in the third chapter, but let me set the stage for you. Moses had been the leader of the children of Israel for 40 years. When they left Egypt and they wandered in the desert, Moses was the tip of the spear. But Moses is now dead. In fact, that's the way the book of Joshua begins. Moses is dead. Joshua is now in charge. He is now taking the place of this strong leader, this God-ordained, anointed leader. He was nervous about it, so three times in Joshua chapter 1, God would tell him to not be afraid, to be bold and courageous, because God would go with him just as he had gone with Moses. Joshua listened to those words, and he assumed the role of leader. He rose to the occasion 
if you will. And he did the most unique thing in Joshua chapter 2. He sent two spies into Canaan, into the promised land, to bring back a report of what they see. Before they cross the Jordan River and go into it, he wanted to know what these spies are seeing. Years and years and years and years ago, spies had been sent by Moses into the promised land, 12 of them to be exact. If you sang the old song in Sunday school, you know that of those 12, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Joshua was one of the good ones. He brought back a report that said, with God on our side, we can take this land. It's so interesting to me that when it was Joshua's turn to send spies into the land, he only sent two. That's all that's needed. I just need two. I'm not asking them if we can take the land. I just want them to come back and tell us what they see. They came back with not only a favorable report about what they had seen, they came back with a new friend that they told Joshua about. She was a prostitute named Rahab. Rahab would become not only a friend to these two spies and to Joshua, she would become a friend to God. A beautiful reminder that no matter how broken your life is, you have a place in the kingdom of God. No matter how much brokenness you deal with, no matter how much brokenness you live with, if you will trust that brokenness to God, he can use it. Rahab is a perfect, beautiful picture of that. If you've never read Joshua chapter 2, read it. Read it. In fact, let me just say, if you have never read the book of Joshua, read it. It is a fantastic book. It is an amazing read. It is so much more than the history of an ancient people. It is so much more than that. It is a book that is about you and God's church. It is a book that is about the here and the now and what God wants to do in the lives of the people that trust him. Oh, Joshua will inspire you. It will inspire you. Get into that book. If you're going to choose only one book in the Old Testament to read, make it the book of Joshua. Get in there, and you'll find what you're looking for. In fact, in the 24th chapter, you'll find Joshua encouraging the people, if not demanding of them, that they settle the matter of their own faith individually. The very thing that we'll be talking about these next few weeks, well, that rises to the top in the book of, jo- excuse me, the book of Joshua. You'll find it there. But that's a discussion for another time. Today, we are in Joshua chapter 3. I want you to listen close to these first six verses. I love them. They're often overlooked, but there is deep teaching here. Verse 1, then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. They came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. Let me stop there for just a second. At this particular point in time, there were about a million Hebrew people. So when they traveled 10 miles to where they're at, just on the the banks of the Jordan River, the border of the promised land, they weren't hiding in the woods. It was impossible for them to do that. There were a million people camped along the shore of the river. The enemies of God on the other side of the river knew they were there. They were watching them. They'd seen them for the last 40 years as they passed by, and now they are camped on the other side of the Jordan. And here you have all the enemies of God paying close attention to that, wondering what's next. And they were pretty afraid. They were, in fact, very afraid. They had to have been. 
They knew what had been going on for the last 40 years. So Joshua left them camped there for three days with absolutely no fear, with absolutely no fear because God was with them. Now let's pick up verse 2 again. At the end of these three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, I'll get my tongue working, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Now let's stop there again. I want you to pay close attention to what we just read about. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 16 times in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. 16 times. 10 times it is called the Ark of the Covenant. Three times it's called the Ark of the Lord. Three other times it's referred to solely as the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant was a special piece of furniture that resided in the tabernacle, the temporary temple of the Lord. God was enthroned between the two cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where he resided when the tabernacle was set up. The blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the top, the seat where God would be enthroned. The blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled there once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Old Testament law, as Moses brought it down off of the mountain, was kept inside of the Ark of the Covenant. When the Levitical priest would pick it up and they would put it on their shoulders and they would move ahead of the children of Israel... They were encouraged because it meant God was going before them. All they had to do was follow him. That was it. It was this visible sign of encouragement. And so now the officers of the Hebrew people were saying when the Ark of the Covenant moves, when the priest pick it up and they start moving, you move too. There was a specific order that the tribes were supposed to travel in. They were lined up as God wanted them to be lined up. So when the officers were saying, when it moves, you move, he was saying, don't you hesitate. Because if you hesitate, the people behind you will hesitate, and the people behind them will hesitate. When it moves, you move. Everyone moves as soon as the ark moves. But did you catch the warning, the caveat they gave? You stay a, a fair distance away, about 2,000 cubits. If you were to measure that out, that's just over a half mile. You stay a half mile away. Here's all this encouragement, all of this relationship that the Hebrew people experienced with the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. Yet the commanders of the armies were saying, you keep your distance. You stay about a half mile away. You watch the Ark because you've never passed this way before. We've never gone on the other side of the river. So you follow the Ark, but you keep your distance there was already reason to know why. People that had not well respected the Ark of the Covenant died. If they mistreated it, they died. So they were just warned, keep your distance, which really is just a, a different way of saying you be respectful of God. You be respectful of God. I like the way Warren Wiersbe captures this. God is our companion as we go through life but we dare not treat him like a buddy. 
We live in a world today where we have so familiarized ourselves with the triune Godhead that sometimes we treat him so much like a buddy that we lose our respect for him. When we lose our respect for God, we will lose our fear of God. And don't you ever forget that the New Testament, not the Old, the New Testament would teach us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There is a healthy place for respect in our walk with God. And that's what was just taught in Joshua chapter 3. Now that's the Ark of the Covenant side of this teaching. Look what happens next. Joshua will address all of the people. This is verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Back up to verse 5 with me again. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That's the part that is often overlooked in this passage. We can pay close attention to the issue of the ark. It's intriguing to everybody. But when we get to verse 5, this idea of consecrating ourselves is something that we skip over like a rock across the top of the water. We know it's there, but we don't want to spend much time with it. I would tell you that we should. We really should. The idea of consecrating ourselves if you were to boil it down, is simply this, get ready, get ready. Joshua would say, get ready because the Lord's going to do marvelous things among us. So you get ready, you make your heart ready, and you do whatever it takes to do that. In the Old Testament, there were some specific steps given by God in order for the people to consecrate themselves. One of the most prominent ones was to take a bath and change your clothes. I really like that. Take a bath, change your clothes. Now you have to understand why that's so prominent in the Old Testament. During that time, people didn't bathe regularly. There wasn't enough water to do that. So they didn't bathe regularly. But here they are on the banks of the Jordan River and Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. Every one of those million plus people knew what that meant. Take a bath. Take a bath and change your clothes. It is a way of preparing themselves for what God had in store for them. Now, there are other things that came into play in the Old Testament as well that were a part of the consecration process, but all of it was about focusing hearts and minds on Jehovah God so that the people were ready to receive from Him whatever it was that He had for them. The issue of taking a bath and changing your clothes, it was more, though, than just getting ready. It was more than putting on your Sunday best. It was more than just making sure you get all the dirt off your body. It was symbolic of something that we would see even in the New Testament. It was symbolic of dealing with our sin. Sin is oftentimes pictured in Scripture as defilement, as something that's just filthy. And God wants to clean it up within us. Consecration, the act of taking a bath and changing your clothes, well, that is symbolic of the New Testament practice of baptism. Taking a bath and changing our clothes. 
getting ready for what God has in store for us. That's why baptism happens for most people so early on in their walk with Christ. It is a way of recognizing that we have sin in our life and it needs to be taken care of. And the only way for our sin to be taken care of is through Jesus. So we take a bath. We change our clothes. We stop clothing ourselves in sin and we clothe ourselves in righteousness. Very simply, righteousness is right standing with God. Book of Romans talks about this very thing. You've probably read these words before in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, but listen again to what the Apostle Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's the new life in Christ. That's where consecration begins. After that, there are a lot of different acts that come into play. Things that we do that prepare us for what God has for us. But there has to be a beginning point. For the children of Israel, as they were getting ready in Joshua chapter 3 to cross the Jordan River, Joshua said, get ready. You get ready. You focus your heart and your mind because God's about to do something amazing. Isaiah would say, come now, let us settle the matter because God's about to do something amazing. And all of that is wrapped together, tied together with our belief in Jesus, what we believe about Him. If there is any one thing that begins this process, that's it. We have to decide what we believe about Jesus. If we want to experience the marvelous things that are in store for us, it starts right there. Consecrate your hearts. Settle the matter. Figure out what you believe about Jesus. And once you've done that, continue the process. Keep consecrating your heart so that you never lose sight of what you believe. You never lose sight of the marvelous things that God has in store for us. There are a lot of things that we could look at that are a part of that process of consecration. We don't have enough time today to do that. So I want to focus on just one. This is found in John chapter 17. Why don't you turn there with me? John chapter 17, the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Chapter 17, verse 17. John writes, Jesus' words, but John writes. And Jesus is praying. He is praying to his Father in heaven when he says this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is another word for consecrate. So we could easily read it this way. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now if you remember what we just said about consecration, it applies to sanctification as well, though sanctification does have a deeper meaning. Consecrate means get ready. Make yourself ready. So we have Jesus saying, make them ready 
in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctify is this process that we go through, the process of sanctification, where more and more things are carved away from us, and they are then replaced with righteousness, right standing with God. That's the process of sanctification, but sanctification begins in consecration. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. When we want to settle the matter, as Isaiah would say, that hope would be awakened, even as Joshua would say, that we might experience the marvelous things that God has in store for us, it will be very difficult for us to pull that off without the Word of God, without spending time in it, without the truth that is found there. If you want to truly settle the matter of what you believe about Jesus, you can ask a whole lot of other people how they feel about Him, what they have decided, how they have settled him in their hearts and minds. But if you want to do it for yourself, you're going to have to get into Scripture. And in order to do that, you may very well have to break with a cultural paradigm that's extremely difficult to get away from. A guy named Joey O'Connor says it very well. Take a look. If we're going to grow in Christ as the chosen, loved, and accepted children of God, we need to detach from our addiction to activity. We must let go of our preoccupation with what is most pressing, leave our love affair with the immediacy of technology, abandon or at least identify what we want versus what we need. We must regularly and intentionally kick out the two-by-fours, propping up all the outer attachments of our false self that shape the illusion we believe to be our true self. Let's come to our senses to remember whose we are. When we know whose we are, we discover who we are. This is when life becomes a bit clearer. That may very well be what Jesus was asking God to do on our behalf Kick out the two-by-fours of illusion that we might really recognize, first and foremost, whose we are, so that we can understand who we are. And in order to understand whose we are, we must first settle the matter of who Jesus is. Does that make sense? And when we settle the matter of who Jesus is, we can begin to discover who we really are. But you've got to slow down to do it. You have to remove some other distractions to do it. It requires an element of consecration. It requires an element of focus that is somewhat absent in our world today. But if we'll find it, if we will find it, hope can be awakened within those without it and marvelous things can be experienced by God's children. But first we have to focus our hearts. We have to consecrate ourselves that we might settle the matter. You might wonder, what, what does that look like? If we're going to kick out these two-by-fours, if we're going to slow down, if maybe we're even going to detach from some of the technology that drives our world today so that we can focus, as Jesus would say, solely on God's Word and truth, what does that look like? Well, let me show you an idea. Let me give you an option. It's what I would refer to as my 28-day challenge. Starting today, there are 28 days until Christmas. 
the day that we really should have the matter settled in our hearts and minds of who Jesus is. 28 days can pull that off. Over the course of these 28 days, if you will slow down, if you'll just push the brakes on some of the busyness of life, if you will slow down and try this, if you have yet to settle in your heart and mind who Jesus is, I believe that this can help accomplish it. If you have settled it, then I believe that this could be one of the greatest acts of consecration that you can go through as we progress towards Christmas. It will strengthen the settled matter in your heart of who Jesus is. Here's my challenge to you. In 28 days, read all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you want to settle the matter of who Jesus is, there's no better place to do it than in those four books of the Bible because that's where Jesus is found, the four Gospels. Now, you might think, huh, that seems a bit daunting. 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, that's all it takes. And I want to encourage you in the midst of my challenge to make it somewhere near the beginning of your day so that it's the first 15 minutes of your day. Joshua was a morning person. When he met with the Lord, he did it first thing in the morning. Jesus most often did the same. He got up very early in the morning to commune with the Lord. There's something powerful about that. There is something amazing when we start our day with the Lord. So make it one of the first things that you do that you might further settle the matter. And here's what it looks like. Week one, beginning today, would look just like this. Matthew chapters one through three. Now, obviously, that can't be the first thing you do this morning. But when you get home, read those three chapters. And then there's three chapters every day. It takes 15 minutes. Three chapters. In week two, starting next Sunday, this is what it looks like. In week three, this is what it looks like. And in week four, here it is again. And that ends John chapters 19 through 21, Christmas Sunday. And you will have settled the matter. Now we're going to walk back through those again real fast, Terry. If you want to get your phone out, take a picture of those so that you have that reading for you. But if you don't want to do that, get your phone out and log on to the Libby Christian Church app and these are all on there. So every day, you can look at what Scripture is next. It isn't very difficult. If you start in Matthew 1 through 3, then you're just going to do three chapters a day until you're done. But if you want to be sure and not lose track, then follow along on the church app or through the pictures. So Terry, let's run back through them one more time. Maybe you've already started. Here we go. Take a picture if you want to take a picture. Week 2, take a picture. Week 3. And week four, or go on the app. And we're going to leave the link to these scriptures on the app for the next 28 days, so they're not going to disappear. If you've not downloaded that, go to the Church Center app on your app store and select Libby Christian Church. It is so easy to do it, and all of these will be on there. Now, I want to encourage you to take it a step further as well. Why don't you text me if you have my number or email me. My email is in the, the bulletin and tell me you're accepting the challenge. I want to be able to pray for you as we go through these next 28 days. I'll be doing it with you. 
So if you're thinking, I'm not sure that I want to do this alone, you won't be alone. I'm going to read these three chapters every day, and I'm going to go through it with you. But my prayer is that it will either settle the matter for you the first time, or that it will further strengthen your walk with Jesus as it is more and more settled for you. So text me or email me if you want to take this challenge. At the end of all of it, my prayer is that you will understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. Now let me remove the part there where Paul just talks about himself and the others. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. That's what it means to have the matter settled in your heart, to know exactly who Jesus is. Find out who he is, that you might experience marvelous things in your life as hope is awakened. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, what a challenge to settle in our hearts and our minds once and for all what we believe about you. I pray, Lord, for those that have yet to do that, and I know that there are those among us that haven't. I pray that these next 28 days will settle the matter for them. I know that there are others, Lord, that settled it a long time ago, but they're shaky in what they believe. Father, would you settle the matter for them? I know that there are others that have drifted, and they're not shaky. They, they feel like they're lost. Would you bring them back through the truth? And Father, your word is truth. So would you bring them back? that they might be settled firmly in you. Of course, Lord, it's our desire to help in any way we can. So I pray that in the right moments, you'll provide the opportunities for that to happen. In Jesus' name, amen.